The Window on the World, an international press review by the European Democratic Party, bringing you weekly news and commentaries that matter. Welcome to the ninth episode of the second series of The Window on the World. Today is Friday, October 21st, and in this podcast we will hear the best editorials from around the world on the course of the war in Ukraine and its possible developments, the crisis of the world economy and a likely paradigm shift, and the climate change debate, and the protest by some activists who threw tomato soup on a Van Gogh painting. We'll start right away with the first series of editorials. The first editorial of the day concerns the progress of the conflict between Russia and Ukraine in Eastern Europe. The latest news on the subject tells us of Russian attacks that have seriously damaged some Ukrainian energy infrastructure, leaving thousands of civilians without water and electricity. The bombings have been called war crimes by European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. The first editorial of the day comes from Germany and the German weekly Dizit. In Ukraine, power plants and children's playgrounds go up in flames. Propagandists hail the bombings on Russian TV. But does this bring Russia closer to victory? Asked journalist Michael Thuman. Some observers would be convinced, according to Thuman, the destruction of civilian infrastructure in order to throw Ukrainians' daily lives into chaos would bring the Kremlin closer to victory. I don't think so, the journalist writes. Wars are not won by bombing from skies alone, Thuman explains, recalling how even during World War II, Germany heavily bombed the United Kingdom but failed to break it. And again, even during the Vietnam War, the US made excessive use of bombing to no avail. Putin knows this too, which is why he initiated the second wave of mobilization of reservists. The purpose of the bombings then would be to provide a new story for Russian propaganda. As long as Ukrainians are worse off than Russians, a long war can be endured. Chaos is victory. The second comment comes from the British newspaper The Financial Times. According to Gideon Rachman, international diplomacy is not doing enough to reach a peace agreement. Far from being mutually exclusive, the journalist explains, fighting and dialogue need to happen at the same time, a view also shared by a senior source within the armed forces, quoted by Rachman. Military action is ineffective on its own. It's only truly effective when it's combined with economic and diplomatic efforts. And we're not seeing enough diplomacy, a worrying fact given the risk of escalation and the growing number of casualties. According to the columnist, the poor diplomatic efforts would be partly the responsibility of Ukraine and its most ardent supporters. For them, even talking about diplomacy is tantamount to bowing to Russia. To date, open channels between the West and Russia seem very few. Third-party diplomacy might be a more fruitful path, the editorial suggests, perhaps with the mediation of Turkey or India. It will not be easy to reach agreement between the parties, but finding creative solutions to intractable problems is what high-level diplomacy is all about. We now return again to the European Union for the last opinion of this section and go to the French newspaper Le Figaro. For the author Philippe Ba, former secretary-general of the President of the Republic under Jacques Chirac, the idea of bringing Putin to repentance and making him leave power is just an illusion. Behind the current Russian head of government, there is no Western democracy based on the rule of law and civil liberties. Ba's hypothesis, then, is that the current regime would be followed by another that would pursue the same goals as it has historically been for Russia. It is difficult to imagine that a lasting solution would emerge from a regime change following a military defeat. 
In this scenario, it would be France that will have to take a pivotal role in seeking another way out of the crisis. The reasons would be several, such as having maintained ties with Russia and being a permanent member of the UN Secretary Council. He can then propose a method to move in several steps from a ceasefire to a peace agreement, the former Secretary General writes. The key points that will need to be laid out in the agreement will be many. How to organize the withdrawal from the occupied territories? Will Ukraine have to remain neutral? Lifting of sanctions? But the editorial concludes, what do we prefer? The escalation of terror or the search for a new internationally guaranteed balance of power? Let's now discuss the state and possible future of the global economy. According to Rana Faruhar, columnist for the US newspaper The New York Times, the many crises of this historic moment such as the war in Ukraine, COVID-19, soaring gas prices and skyrocketing mortgage rates have thrown the world's economy into chaos. The fear is real, but the chaos is transitory, as it is largely driven by the tumult that attends any transition from an old economy order to a new one, reassures Faruhar. Every economy goes through cycles of expansion and contraction. What we are experiencing, according to the columnist, will turn out to be a paradigm shift in the philosophy behind the world's economy. Our economy, all based on globalization, is realizing the negative consequences of the process such as energy dependence on dictatorial regimes. There is still no unified economic theory for the world ahead. What is certain is that it's up to those who care about the liberal democracy to craft a new system that better balances local and global interests. The next editorial takes us to France and the newspaper Le Monde. For Christopher Rameau, Professor of Economics at the Sorbonne in Paris, liberal economists are convinced that inflation always originates in the monetary policy adopted by central banks. But for the French economist, inflation always originates in the real economy. It can result from excess demand or from the increase of certain production costs, raw materials, wages, but also corporate margins. Current inflation would thus be linked to the war, which has driven up energy prices and the pandemic. According to the think tank Terra Nova, cited in the editorial, the solution to get out of the crisis would be a tax on super profits, even a temporary one, as these are not reinvested by companies in the real economy and are not due to any innovation implemented by companies. Beyond this, the economist concludes, it is precisely a real bifurcation that our economies need, a solidarity-based bifurcation involving the wealthiest to increase the incomes of the working and middle classes. A new productive and ecological way to address the structural roots of inflation. The last contribution on the topic in this episode comes from another French-speaking country, Belgium. The newspaper La Libre publishes an editorial by economist Michael van den Abiel. The economist draws a parallel between the years of economic crisis prior to World War II, run by then-Belgian finance minister Camille Goet and the years we are currently living through. Operation Good reduced inflation and allowed Belgium to quickly regain economic growth, Van den Abiel explains. There are several economic indicators that these two historical periods have in common. Uncertainty about the availability of raw materials, especially energy, radical price increases, a collapse in stock market values. After attempting to bargain with power producers in order to reduce their tariffs, then Minister Gutt succeeded in having a tax enacted against Belgian power producers or distributors. 
Much of the proceeds were reinvested in social housing and armaments in preparation for a possible war. We were not far from the current concept of a tax on specific profits discussed at the Belgian or European level, or that of taxing the super profits of energy companies, notes Van den Abiel. Hoping not to find ourselves financing a war as well, the columnist concludes, budgetary efforts should thus be used to limit energy prices or for investments with the aim of limiting energy consumption. Climate change and activist protests are the topic of this last part of the podcast. Earlier in the week, two young anti-climate change activists from the group Just Stop Oil threw two cans of tomato soup on Vincent van Gogh's famous painting Sunflowers on display at the National Gallery in London. However, the painting was protected by plexiglass and was not damaged. In the activists' intentions, the protests served to relate the fact that the society in which we live in cares more about the protection of a painting than protecting the planet from climate change. The first opinion on the protest of the two activists is from Arno Frank, a columnist for the German Der Spiegel. What is worth more, art or life? Is it worth more than food, more than justice? Are you more concerned about protecting a painting or protecting our planet and its people? The two activists asked. Questions to which Frank replies that, of course, life and people are worth more. But the columnist also questions whether or not the protest was productive for the purposes of drawing attention to the ongoing climate crisis. The climate crisis doesn't need any more publicity, Frank explains. Those who don't know where the use of fossil fuels will take us simply pretend not to know and will likely be just as disinterested in the integrity of the painting. Secondly, the cultural past of human activity does not become a legitimate tomato target because the ecological consequences of human activity endangers the future, the columnist continues. Finally, the article concludes, Hardly this protest has attracted the sympathy of many to the climate cause. Of a completely different opinion, however, is Jeff Sparrow, a columnist for the British newspaper The Guardian. The sunflowers painting, safe behind a plexiglass sheet, remained entirely unharmed and went back on display the same day, the columnist explains. The protest is just the latest in a series with the same objective, but which still did not damage any targeted artwork. These protests have drawn the ire of many conservative journalists, for whom, however, Sparrow points out, it is not just the methods. It is the goal, the fight against climate change, that they cannot stand. No matter what action was put in place, young activists were always criticized and ridiculed. The ongoing demoralization by some newspapers falls in line with the enactment of anti-protest laws that several governments are passing, with the aim of limiting actions such as these. We cannot devise a just act action that will somehow satisfy the apologists for the status quo. The journalist argues. Sparrow also points out, however, that in raising government's awareness on the importance of combating climate change, mass protests by the ordinary men and women who suffer most from climate change would be more effective. Of course, every social movement in history harbors differences, and every movement makes mistakes. In conclusion, however, Sparrow agrees with the protest. It's far, far better to speak too loud than to remain silent just as demonstrations of any kind are preferable to apathy or cynicism. We'll conclude this press review with the latest editorial on the topic of climate change, but let's talk now about ecological transition. Written by Gwenola Chambon, 
and Munir Korm of the Paris-based investment service, Vabon Infrastructure Partners and lawyer Benoit Thirion and published in the French newspaper Les Echos. In their article, the three columnists address the issue of the transition to renewable energy by explaining the importance of the so-called social license to operate, SLO for short. Conceived in the context of mining, drilling, the SLO requires that when an investment project is developed, it is made sure that all stakeholders benefit from it. According to an opinion poll conducted in five countries, between 82 and 93% of the population believes it is essential to get the support of residents to start an infrastructure project, the columnists explain. Indeed, it is not infrequent for projects that have already been started to be abandoned in the course of construction due to opposition from the local population. It is therefore necessary to involve the whole society in these ecological transition projects, from the national to the local level. And that brings us to the end of the ninth episode of the second season of The Window on the World. We thank you so much for following us, and we look forward to seeing you again next Friday with the best editorials from Europe and the rest of the world. This week's editorial work was edited by Daniel Rutza. And at the microphone, it's me, Gail Rago. See you next week. <laughs>